to this podcast of the Centre for Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge. I am Thomas Peake, and today we'll be speaking with Alice Weiriamu Deritu, the new Special Advisor on the Prevention of Genocide to the UN Secretary General and Head of the important United Nations Office on Genocide Prevention and Responsibility to Protect. Before taking on her new role, Special Advisor Deritu enjoyed a distinguished career in international peacebuilding a career which includes a significant and important role played in intercommunal reconciliation processes in her home country of Kenya. Welcome, Special Advisor Doritu. Thank you very much for having me today. Thank you. No, thank you very much for taking the time. It's a pleasure. And welcome to your new role. And I hoped we could perhaps begin with hearing what your priorities will be as special advisor. Thank you. Um, I come to this role as, so to speak, straight from the villages where I've been mediating armed conflict, not just in my continent of Africa, but also in other spaces around the world, in the Philippines, in Myanmar, in, in quite a number of places. And I've been working with communities. I've worked um, at the national level too, like uh, with the national commissions and other kind and those other kind of bodies, and I come to this office um, with the awareness that my predecessors did a huge amount of work to raise awareness uh, to build the capacity of of regional organisations, member states, and national governments um, on understanding the framework of the prevention of genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, what we call um, atrocity crimes. And I, I feel, I come to this place knowing that uh, the communities um, that have been working among the farmers and herders uh, in the Sahel, for example, who on every, every other day uh, atrocities happen amongst them, but they do not recognize these atrocities as related to the kind of uh, atrocity crimes I just mentioned. I feel that we... I have to create that link for people who are on the ground, where atrocities are happening, um, knowing the link and understanding that genocide prevention is, is not the prerogative of only nations or member states or countries or regional organizations, but it is their own prerogative. So really the question that I bring with me to the UN is how do we get people in communities around the world who are involved in um, in situations that could lead to mass atrocities, or that are already in in um, in and are, are already atrocities in themselves? How do we get them to recognize what is happening to them and to do something about it? So, uh, the other priority that I have, of course, is to ratify the convention to see get as many more countries as possible to ratify the convention on the prevention and punishment of the crime of genocide that um, I, I worry um, that such a basic convention that should be at the core of, of um, every country in terms of protecting its people from uh, genocide that hasn't been ratified by quite a number of, of countries. And um, so one of the things that I'm going to do um, is to commission a study on the countries that have not yet ratified the convention so that I understand the reasons behind their lack of ratification and then get clear recommendations from them in terms of what we need to do towards ratification. And then there are countries that have ratified the Convention on the Prevention and, punish, and Punishment of, of, of the Crime of Genocide that 
um, still continue to have atrocities um, happening, yet they've, they've ratified this convention. So it, uh, I'm also going to work uh, to see the extent to which they've incorporated the convention into their domestic legal systems and uh, also how they interpret their obligations under this convention and also any other international treaties on the prevention of atrocity crimes. And then I also come to this space with a strong passion for teachers. I worked uh, with teachers a lot. Um, all the, the, the conflicts I've mediated have, have involved teachers because teachers have a lot of authority in communities. People ask them um, questions like, for example, uh, where do I open a bank account? Like, who do I vote for? And it's so important then to develop programs for teachers on the prevention of atrocities and prevention of genocide um, to teach what hate is and what are its roots, what constitutes hate speech, which is very, very core to my mandate, how to combat hate, how to recognize conflict triggers, um, how, and basic negotiation and mediation skills that um, every child should have growing up that uh, right now um, are taught as, as, as something, like, for example, um, taught to communities in conflict, but taught to people to solve problems, not taught to children to grow up with knowing that uh, if there is ever a conflict, that this is what they need to do. So um, I, then, of course, I'm carrying on the work of my predecessors, key among which is um, um, hate speech, work on hate speech, our office is the focal point uh, for the UN strategy and plan of action on hate speech. And uh, I plan to continue stepping up action to address this global challenge um, in collaboration with um, with government, civil society, private sector, and, and, and other partners. But ultimately, um, when by the time I leave this office, I I, I I come to this office knowing that there are so many people in the world who know that atrocities are going to happen to them and they do not know who to tell. And I would really like to be the in that space that creates that connection of when an atrocity is about to happen and who to tell. And I say so knowing that um, quite a number of countries uh, don't have, for example, 911. I'm in a country right now where sirens keep going on, and each time I hear uh, a siren, uh, then I know that that's a response, that somebody somewhere has asked for help or, some, or help is being taken somewhere. And I think to myself of the number of places I've worked in where that's a reality that they would never imagine, where um, whatever is happening to you happens to you. You know that um, killings are going to happen, and you feel completely helpless. Sometimes the government is too far away from you. And ultimately, what is it that people like me in the kind of position that I have been put in right now, what can I do to ensure that people who know that atrocities are going to happen to them know then who to tell and that the response is forthcoming and that the response is impactful and useful? Thank you. That's that's a very, very interesting answer. It, it sounds very much as if you're kind of melding kind of top down and, and, and bottom up approaches um, to genocide prevention, which must in itself be, be somewhat of a challenge. Yes, absolutely. It, um, it's, it's a huge challenge, um, especially because of what I said earlier, that um, most uh, people in the world, including those who are undergoing atrocities, the, who are undergoing um, clearly in a space where things are happening that could amount to genocide, um, they 
do not interpret what is happening to them from the perspective of genocide. They feel that genocide is something that national governments deal with and regional organizations and international bodies. They, they don't see it from their perspective. And even when they do, they don't know what to do. They do not know who to speak to. They do not know who to write to. They do not know how to stop what is happening to them from happening to them. They do not know how um, crimes, for example, are certified as, as genocide. And, and that uh, then creates that link between top-down and bottom-up approaches because there has to be a meeting point uh, between the two. What exists at the national legislative level, regional, international legislative level, and what then exists in terms of um, linking uh, the atrocities on the ground to those protections that uh, already exist. Thank you. And, and and turning slightly to the the kind of the uh, some of the top down challenges facing your office, um, I wanted to ask you at the beginning of your tenure, how significant do you see some of the structural challenges that you're faced with, specifically your need to operate within and to encourage cooperation within Security Council? where one permanent member has arrived at a a genocide determination on another. How do you you navigate that landscape? I have been undertaking quite a number of of, of courtesy calls since I came into office and meeting um, a lot of people from uh, various uh, member states. And uh, one of my key priorities was the Security Council. And I know um, I've engaged with with, with them and... uh, I know that the council itself consists of uh, member states who, by virtue of just coming from member states, have diverging interests. But at the same time, I know that the UN Charter gives the Security Council the responsibility to, if I may quote, maintain international peace and security. And uh, I also know that to be efficient, my office requires the council to support uh, in diffusing conflicts. So... Um, I know that um, the, the Security Council, um, there are many dynamics around the Security Council, but uh, many conflicts have gone on worldwide, even with the existence of the Security Council. Probably what's most instructive for me is that uh, these conflicts haven't drawn um, the major powers into direct conflict with each other. So uh, in relation to your question, the primary focus of my mandate is prevention of genocide. So I, I, I do not determine whether genocide, war crimes, or crimes against humanity have occurred, but uh, rather I, I focus on early prevention on elements that if not addressed or, or stopped might uh, heighten the risk of, 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 of these crimes. So when one member state uh, accuses another member state of, uh, of, of uh, genocide, um, or when one member state uh, uh, arrives at a genocide determination on another, um, then... We, as an office, are not in the position to determine whether um, uh, that is a genocide or not. What we do, what we are in a position to do, is to look at specific situations and we look at uh, risk factors. We look at the past, we look at the present, and uh, we see whether those risk factors, we advise whether those risk factors could uh, legally qualify uh, as uh, international crime of of, of genocide or crimes against humanity and war crimes uh, and war crimes and how do we do this because we make assessments as to whether there is a risk of any of these crimes occurring in any situation and I'm, I'm talking about um, us assessing risk factors for atrocity crimes such as hate speech stigmatization ethnic profiling um, human rights violations and abuses 
and, and because we know that uh, atrocity crimes like genocide do not happen overnight, they require planning, they are processes, they have root causes, they have triggers, and that, that there needs to be a conducive environment to their occurrence, then we look at all those factors and then advise accordingly. So, so really, it is um, not within our mandate to determine whether a genocide is, is happening or not. So when a member state accuses another um, member state of um, genocide, then what we do is, um, even before it happens, because we have um, an ongoing, um, everyday uh, situation country, analysis of, of countries. So we look at that, those situations of analysis, and then we make that determination. So we treat, for example, the determination of one member state on another, on genocide, we treat all member states equally. And at the same time, we rely on our ways of analyzing, our framework of analysis for atrocity prevention, for example, to get us to that point. So, and if we do then determine that uh, it, it is at that point, then we advise the Secretary General, who in turn advises the General Assembly or the Security Council. But, but at, at this uh, particular point, there's no single process that will not go through um, the exact, what I've just described, the steps that I've just described, that we have to analyze each single issue depending on quite a number of risk factors. And, and that's, a, that's a very interesting insight to, to, to your work. And, and I, I wonder if you could elaborate, even possibly drawing on examples beyond human rights situation in, in Xinjiang, of how the broader geopolitical confrontation between China and the US influences your ability to do your work and to respond to crisis situations as they emerge. You know, the, the uh, geopolitical confrontation between China and the, and the US, uh, we see it not unlike any other political disagreements in um, other countries, because we need to work within the confines of the world as, as it is. When we think about the 193 member states of, of, of uh, the UN, there are so many geopolitical confrontations happening at so many levels. Some of them actually result in actual violence. Uh, you saw what happened, for example, in uh, Karabakh. Um, many conflicts that we see right now, we've seen Ethiopia and the accusations of Eritrean troops being on the ground. Like there are so many of these kind of geopolitical confrontations going on. So we prefer to see what happens between China and the U.S. In just like any other political disagreement um, that, that happens. So just, you, you don't feel that it, the, this kind of gridlock in the Security Council in any kind of significant way hinders your ability to operate in, in cases such as Myanmar or, 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 or certain others? You know, in Myanmar, Myanmar is um, a situation that um, right now, uh, has we've uh, we issued a statement with it on it on on Myanmar, sorry, just two weeks ago, together with the um, office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, uh, the High Commissioner Michelle Bachelet, and even as we issued the statement, uh, we issued it with the with the knowledge that uh, in Myanmar that there are quite a number of processes that are going on there. And we have the ICJ because you remember in 2019, Gambia proceeded against Myanmar in the International Court of Justice and they alleged that Myanmar had failed its obligation under the convention to prevent genocide and they, and they requested uh, for provincial, for provincial measures. 
And then we also have the ICC. We know that in again in 2019 that uh, the pre-trial chamber authorized a formal investigation by the prosecutor into the situation of the Rohingya. And we know that the prosecutor had requested an investigation into the crime of uh, deportation as a crime against uh, humanity. The decision of the trial chamber is, is very important because it gave the prosecutor a very broad scope that may allow her to investigate other crimes, including genocide. As long as the crime was committed, uh, at least in part on the territory of Bangladesh, where most of the Rohingya now are as um, refugees, or the territory of another state party, because Myanmar is not a state party to the Rome Statute. And then we have the independent investigative uh, mechanism for Myanmar that is headed by Nicolas Komjo. And they are collecting evidence of the most serious international crimes and violations of international law. And they, to, they are preparing files for criminal prosecution. So I'm, I'm saying all this about Myanmar, not to underplay the role of a United Security Council, but to say that uh, for Myanmar, for example, there are quite a number of uh, other mechanisms that are involved and that are working. And But at the same time, our statement uh, with uh, Michelle Bachelet, we, we recommended, we asked the Security Council to follow up on the meeting that it had previously had on, uh, on, on, on Myanmar. And really, we would really want um, action taken because when you imagine the situation of, of uh, what's going on in Myanmar, there's been a coup. And the, beyond the, the, the coup, we have uh, the already dire situation of the Rohingya that was there to begin with. You can imagine what it feels like for them to be under the Tatmadaw right now. So I say all this to say that um, we work we try as many entry points as possible. Our office tries as many entry points as possible. We partner with UN agencies like the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. We support the work that's going on through the in any kind of way in research in anything. But at the same time, of course, we really, really do need a Security Council that stands together on situations uh, like Myanmar. And it's often the case that people sometimes forget how united the Security Council was when the, the, our office was created, the Office of the Prevention of Genocide and the Office of, um, of, of the Responsibility to Protect, that uh, the world had just come through Rwanda and Srebrenica. And again, the world was saying never again, just like the world had said never again after the Holocaust. Now the world was saying never again. So we do need uh, that Security Council, the Security Council that's... that's uh, stands together for, for those kind of situations. Thank you. And the, the next question, again, touches directly on this, this issue of, of the Security Council and, and the kind of the, the promises of, of never again, which, which you reference. And you'll, you'll not be unaware that much of the world is, is quite shocked by the events that are occurring in, in, in Xinjiang, uh, which have been, des been designated as genocide by the US and and other states, and but given the, the the world as it is and the intractability in the Security Council, I wonder is there anything that can be done to to, to halt what has been referred to as the ongoing genocide of the Uyghur people? Uh, part of the mandate of my office is to collect um, information on issues of uh, violations of human rights, international humanitarian law, and um, if we are specifically asked to do so on the basis of ethnic and racial origin that and we look at it from the perspective that um, if those situations are not prevented they might lead to genocide so as i said 
earlier we bring attention to potential situations that could result in genocide. We have a document uh, in the office called the Framework of Analysis for the Prevention of Atrocity, through which we assess um, certain countries or certain situations in terms of whether they qualify, uh, whether they fit um, the risk factors um, that could show that a country is sliding towards um, genocide. So uh, I would say that for this particular situation, as well as other situations in the world, that the process is the same, that we have to verify. And then as soon as we verify, then we advise the Secretary General. So there's no situation in the world that uh, is above our verification. We are verifying every, every single complaint we receive. So we verify it and then we look at it from the perspective of um, whether it qualifies or not. So I would say that um, we've received complaints on this particular situation. And uh, just like other situations we've received complaints on. And of course, th there's a whole process of verification that is happening. Thank you. And now referring to your, your background in African peacemaking, I would like to ask you specifically about another crisis, the ongoing crisis in the, in the Great Lakes region. It seems that geopolitical competition and resource extraction continue to generate immense suffering for civilian populations there, especially in, in the eastern DRC. And as neighbouring governments continue to encroach upon the DRC, do you feel that the peace, security and cooperation framework is still sufficient? From my mandate, my, my major concern in the Great Lakes region uh, is ethnic violence, ethnic divisions, the root causes. You know, what sustains these ethnic divisions? How do we break the supply and demand chain of, of weapons, which is a very efficient chain and knowing that uh, again that atrocity crimes that are happening there particularly in the DRC uh, do not happen overnight and that we know that um, there are all these processes um, with, with you know with the root causes and triggers I described earlier and the very conducive environment for happening that is what worries us a lot in the office and uh, we worry about the ethnically motivated attacks and the ethnic profiling of citizens in terms of um, constituting that very dangerous trajectory um, that heightens the risk of, of, of genocide. And we know also that uh, member states of the UN, including those in the Great Lakes, that they have uh, unanimously pledged to protect populations from these crimes. Now, in the Great Lakes, they have a protocol on specifically on the prevention of genocide, and it's the only part of the world where a specific committees have been created by member states um, on the prevention of genocide. So we know that the protection of populations is really the primary responsibility of states. But uh, through those uh, genocide committees, uh, they, we keep um, pointing out to the member states that the international community has a responsibility to assist them in protecting populations where necessary. So uh, you, in terms of the, the Great Lakes region, we know has is always uh, teetering on, on the verge of... of uh, Atrocities, we've seen one of the worst atrocities happen there, the genocide in Rwanda. However, I feel that uh, an independent and impartial investigation into the, those allegations on, on neighboring governments and uh, ensuring of accountability for serious violations would then be required, but that would not be within the mandate of our office. Thank you. So with, within the, the mandate of your office, it, it seems like your primary focus in the region 
uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is is diffusing this kind of the some of these ethnic tensions and and trying to work to build bridges between communities who have been been in conflict. Is is that a, a kind of a correct understanding? Yes, yes, that is correct. And how do you see the the specific <coughs> challenges um, of, of this approach in in the region? Is there any is there anything in the Great Lakes which is particularly challenging from this aspect? Yes, of course, the Great Lakes um, home to so many resources, and the resources, of course, um, bringing their dynamics of of issues. Um, we have, uh, I think, it's the one of the regions with the highest number of peace agreements and highest number of peace agreements that uh, have fallen apart as well. And um, it's it's also a region where there is a lot of interest from quite a number of uh, other countries. You remember at some point there was, uh, um, uh, there was kept overlapping into each other. We would find um, um, the militaries of so many um, other countries in, in the, for example, in the DRC. So, the environment that creates a very conducive environment for the kind of work that we do in terms of preventing genocide. The, um, some of the governments in, in the region have um, little control over some of the areas. And uh, then it, it brings us into that space where you have militias then have so much power. Because when you're then preventing uh, uh, atrocities, then you're working with militias, which is, uh, in essence, um, what we should be doing. Because uh, you, in peace building, what I've learned is that it's important to work with the people with power to create war, because, in essence, they also have the power to create peace. So there are quite a number of dynamics in, in, in that uh, particular space of the Great Lakes region that contribute to... Uh, the Great Lakes region always being part of the priority um, countries uh, that need addressing in terms of prevention of atrocity. Thank you. And one one final question. Uh, unfortunately, any conversation on your your, your tenure is going to um, raise um, issues which which cause people a lot of distress and despondence. Um, but I I just like to ask you where you see particular cause for hope at this moment um, in the world? There's quite a bit, and your question is related to a question I often ask myself when I think about hope. And uh, that question is, how do we quantify what we prevent? Because we prevent quite a bit, but then we can't quantify it, we can't qualify it, we can't explain it, we can't prove it. And uh, there is a lot of hope in terms of uh, the strength of will of, of young people and, uh, and, and community leaders who have managed to achieve change within their communities. We have uh, quite a number of, of local peace champions. We have a lot, a lot of ownership of, um, of, of processes that are participatory, that involve uh, people. I see a lot of hope in women's inclusion in, in peace building. It never was the case that women would be included in peace building. It was often always um, the situation that peacemaking was uh, seen as men's business and the making war was seen as men's business. And uh, we never went into the details of um, whether women are involved in peacemaking, in war making. But that uh, has completely changed. You've seen the landscape change. There's more ownership of, 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 of uh, peace processes. There is also 
more ownership of issues. Um, if you look at the young people in Myanmar right now, um, standing up and saying, this is our country and um, things need to happen differently. Um, they have carved a very powerful niche for themselves in, in Myanmar. This is something that hasn't been seen before. There's also stronger accountability for those in positions of power to achieve change. Um, there are quite a number of um, spaces in which um, we can find uh, accountability. We can find space for accountability. And this is uh, happening. And right now, I'm involved in a program where we are trying to work uh, with the learning institutions uh, worldwide to theorize prevention of genocide. Because people see genocide as this really huge word, frightening word that often not unpacked, or they see it as something that happened in Rwanda, or they see it as something that happened in the past, like a historical event. And right now, we are doing a lot of work in terms of um, unpacking this. And we know at the end of the day um, that when you're speaking about hope, that we can't measure the success of hope in, in, in trying one's best, but we measure it in terms of achieving the expected result, which is averting the fear tragedy. And the, at the end of the day, then we come back to how do we quantify what we prevent. And I would just like to say to anyone listening to this that prevention of genocide is not impossible. And that with clear and early warnings, which are usually there because genocides are planned, uh, and um, with those kind of clear and early warnings, uh, if we, based on rigorous and tested methodology, if we take decisive action, and uh, if we commit to deal with the immediate and root causes, that we can actually prevent genocide. And, and that's really the space for hope that um, we need to keep uh, widening this circle of people who are working on the prevention of genocide so that uh, the more people we get into that circle, the better it is in terms of uh, prevention of genocide and related uh, atrocity crimes. Thank you. And um, I wish you all the best of luck for this very, very um, uh, important task which is ahead of you. And I look forward to seeing your the, the positive results of your work. Thank you very much. And um, I really appreciate this opportunity to that you invited me to speak. And um, I would ask that uh, the Cambridge community um, thinks uh, quite a lot in terms of uh, theorizing and uh, philosophizing uh, the concept of the prevention of genocide from as many aspects as possible, from a legal aspect, from an environmental aspect, from a medical perspective, from psychology perspective, from any kind of perspective that uh, we can think of, uh, including theology, um, so that ultimately we get as many champions as possible throughout the world who can give as many interpretations as possible on the prevention of genocide. Um, it's an area that uh, is not as researched as it should be. It's researched more by historians, more than um, people who are dealing with the present day issues. If you, for example, think about uh, what are the implications of, of uh, the prevention of genocide in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic, then you see a whole world that needs to be thought of, that needs to be discussed, and that needs to then therefore lead us to the uh, saying never again that we shall not have another genocide again.
I, I fully agree and I, I very much hope that uh, the Cambridge community will, will take up your challenge. And Special Advisor Doritu, it's been a pleasure and an honour speaking with you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. And I really, really appreciate, Tom, that uh, I got this opportunity. Thanks for listening to this podcast on genocide and mass atrocity prevention and the responsibility to protect. You can find the Centre for Geopolitics on Twitter at CamGeopolitics. All of our events are advertised on our website at cfg.polis.cam.ac.uk.